All right. Hey, thank you so much for that wonderful time of song and praise, thanksgiving to our God. The Lord is our salvation. Amen? Amen. Well, if I haven't had the opportunity to meet you, my name is Tyler Cash. I get to uh, serve as uh, one of the pastors of this body of believers, Christ Covenant Fellowship. And if this is your first Sunday, you're, you're jumping into a, the beginning of a series that uh, we are looking at uh, in the gospel according to John. We're going to work through this book verse by verse and really unpack the uh, extraordinary Uh, profound realities that we see of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Many people would say if you want to learn more about Jesus, then you should always look at the Gospels. And so uh, that's our hope, our prayer for this. Uh, We've been in the the prologue, the beginning of this book, the beginning of John's writings uh, for a couple of weeks now. Uh, We will have one more week there. Uh, Today we're going to just kind of Put the pump the brakes on verse 14. So turn with me, John 1, 14, just verse 14. This is some profound truths here that I, in my study, I could not uh, bring myself to, to get past here because I, I felt like this was a, a very important place for us to stop and pause and really uh, dig deep into who our Savior is is. So John chapter 1 verse 14. If you're new to the Bible, it's all right. Ask a friend. Ask somebody that you're next to. John's in the New Testament, the book of John. It's in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And the big numbers the chapter, the smaller numbers are the verses. So we're going to just look at 114. I'm going to read this for us. I'm going to pray and ask for God's help, and then we will get into the truths of this passage. John 1:14 reads this. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let us pray. Father, before us today, we have monumental truth. We have a a truth that, apart from your spirit at work, uh, we will never even attempt to understand. So, Father God, we ask you in this moment, in this time, to work in the ways that only you can. Accomplish what you will in the lives of each and every person gathered in this space this morning. We give you praise for the opportunity to gather. So, Lord, we ask that you would give us ears to listen, hearts to receive. Would you soften the hearts of the haughty, the the proud? And would you encourage the hearts of the weary? With this portion of scriptures, we look at our Savior, Christ. Father, we need your help, so we ask what we know not, would you teach us? And what we are not, would you make us? What we have not, would you give us by your grace, for your glory? And God's people said, amen. So before us today lies a passage of scripture that illuminates one of the most profound complexities of the Christian faith, the incarnation of our Savior, 
Jesus Christ. The incarnation is a miraculous, mysterious miracle that lies at the center of Orthodox Christianity. Incarnation is simply a word that means in flesh. In flesh. An incarnation describes what happened when the second person of the Trinity left the delight and splendor of heaven to enter as one of us, as a human, into the disarray, the chaos, the mess, the trouble of the human condition. The incarnation has been called the supreme mystery of the gospel. Others have noted that the incarnation must ever remain the primary affirmation of the church. J.I. Packer, writing in his classic bestseller, Knowing God, states, I quote, It is here, in the thing that happened at the first Christmas, that the most profoundest and most unfathomable depths of the Christian revelation lie. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is the truth of the incarnation, end quote. Brothers and sisters, it is imperative that we take hold to the truths of the incarnation that have been revealed to us in Scripture and marvel then at the wonders of our God. And then by God's grace, as we grow in our knowledge of our God, we grow in our love for our God. Amen? Now, full disclosure, we're not going to unravel all the mysteries of the incarnation today in a 45-minute sermon. Not going to happen. There will be uh, much left to discover. But I want to present three glorious results of the miraculous incarnation from this text before us. So we're going to have three results based on the implications of this text. The first is this. God himself came to man. God himself came to man. Look at the first portion of our text. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. You've got your Bible there. Uh, circle dwelt. Circle became. Underline among us. We see here the term, uh, the word, the logos, that John used in verse 1 appear once again. If you recall, uh, this term is used to describe the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, as God's ultimate self-disclosure. Uh, you could even say maybe his self expression, the word, the logos. And as verse 1 of chapter 1 reminds us, the word, the logos, always existed. Always existed. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So what does John mean here? I mean, this just begs the question, like, what does he mean when he says that the Word, the second person of the Trinity, became flesh? Like, what happens here? Well, I want to start off with a couple of things that it doesn't mean. The Word became flesh does not mean that the word changed from one thing to another thing. It's not some metamorphosis that happens here. 
doesn't change from one thing to then uh, transfers to a, a different thing here. Furthermore, it does not mean that the word was created. He was always there with God. He was not created in some way. Uh, this type of thinking that God was, or that Christ was then created, or uh, that he changed, has been the root of all kinds of heresies throughout the church. The Athanasian Creed actually refutes the idea of Jesus being a created being. It says and states very clearly, based on Scripture, that the, the Son is of the Father alone, neither made nor created, but begotten. But begotten. So what does the word became flesh mean? What does it mean? John, what are you, what are you telling us here? Well, essentially, this statement communicates that in the incarnation, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, put on the full nature of humanity, consisting of an actual body and a true soul as we are except sin. And he did this without losing any of his divine attributes or nature. The Council of Chalcedon, which gathered in 451 A.D. to refute, refute Christological heresies, gives us the standard orthodox definition of the person of Christ here. Here's what it says. That in the one person of Christ are perfectly united the divine nature and the human nature. And this union is without confusion, mixture, separation, or division. Each nature, human and divine, retains its own attributes. I'm going to give you a big theological term here, all right? The theological term for this is called the hypostatic union. Hypostatic union. Write it up. Look it up later. But it sounds complicated. The hypostatic union. It sounds like electricity or something. But what it actually gives us is a very simple term that helps us to put this into perspective. Hypostatic means personal. Hypostatic, personal. The hypostatic union is the personal union of Jesus's two natures, fully God, fully man. And the doctrine of the hypostatic union teaches that these two natures are united in one person, in the God-man, Jesus Christ, without contradiction, without mixture. Perfectly united here. See, this is what happened at the incarnation when the Word became flesh. The second person of the Trinity acquired an additional form without in any way changing his original nature. God remained God when God became man. Amen. That is a, a joy for the Christian. I want to look at two passages to support this idea so you don't think it's just the creeds or my idea. Uh, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 1. It's toward the end of the New Testament. I want you to see uh, this passage. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1. 
we're going we're gonna to look here, and what we see is Jesus Christ is, is fully God. Hebrews chapter 1. I'm going to uh, start in verse 2. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. God has spoken. Then he says, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Right? That's that John 1 right there, right? He was in, he was the word, he was with God, he created the world. And then in verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And then he says, after making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And then let's read on here in verse 5 here. It says, for to which of the angels did God ever say? So he's asking these rhetorical questions here. The writer of Hebrews, he's saying, like, listen, we're not just talking about some, some average Joe over here. We're not just talking about Jesus Christ as just some, some guy who did some great stuff. We're not just talking about a, a great teacher. We're not talking just about someone that we should follow as our moral compass. No, look at what he says. He says, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son? And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Who are they worshiping? Jesus. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a fire, a flame of fire. But of the Son, Jesus Christ, he says, your throne, O God. Underline that. O God is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom goes on, we could continue reading there, but I, I think we get the point. Here's one of the clearest pictures of Jesus Christ as God himself. And then I wanted you to turn back a couple of books here to Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. And let's just look here at verses 5 through 11. And because we, we see here this beautiful description is Jesus as man. Verse 5 reads this, Have this mind among yourselves. This is Paul writing to the church in Philippi. He's writing to Christians here. And he says here, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, meaning that he laid down his heavenly preferences, his heavenly uh, giftings, his, his heavenly privilege. He cast them aside. And then he says that he was, took the form of a servant. Then verse 4, being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then he Goes on in verse 9, look there. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Like, I mean, everywhere. <laughs> there is no space that Jesus does not say, Mine, bow to me. This is the God man. Savior, 
Colossians 2, 9 sums it up like this. You don't have to turn there. For in him, speaking of Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Why does this matter? Why does this matter so much? Like, why spend so much time talking about such magnificent complexities of the Christian faith? I mean, we could say, like, I, I'm, I'll never get this stuff. So I'm just going to, like, leave that one alone. We'll talk about some of the easier stuff over here. Paul speaks about this, right? He says there's a time that, yeah, like, we need some milk. But then, as we grow, there's a time for what? For food, for spiritual food, for solids. But even further, simply put, we must understand this monumental truth because if Jesus is not fully God and fully man, then guess what? We have no salvation. We have no hope. There is no salvation without the fullness of Christ. Fully God, fully man. Let me tell you why. First, our Savior had to be man, human, to be a just substitute for man. For humans. As the 17th century Puritan Aerosmith wrote, that which was not taken could not be healed. If Christ had not taken the whole man, he could not have saved the whole soul. Listen, God had to become man because man is helpless. We are spiritually dead. We can't fix our sin issue. We just continually contribute to it. We have no way to mend our brokenness on our own. We need a substitute. And our substitute had to be one of us. Secondly, our Savior had to be God in order to deal with God, the Father, on equal terms. Our Savior, our mediator, must be God himself because God owes no one no thing or nothing. God owes nobody anything. Isaiah 40 makes this clear. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or, or what man shows him counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Essentially, the prophet Isaiah is communicating the fact that God does not need anyone or anything outside of himself. He is all-sovereign, I meaning he controls all, and he is all-sufficient, meaning he needs nothing. He, he doesn't go outside of himself for counsel. He doesn't go outside of himself for advice. So, brothers and sisters, we must be reminded that the only one able to fully satisfy God's wrath was God himself. And listen, this truth should compel us to stand in reverence and adoration because it is here that we see the extraordinary extent that God himself went to in order to save sinners like you and me. This isn't just some simplicity 
that we should easily cast aside. God Himself, He he came to man. He became man to know man, to save man. John solidifies this point even further as he galvanizes this monumental truth by adding the phrase, uh, look a little bit further there, and dwelt among us. He dwelt among us. Dwelt among us literally means tabernacled or dwelt in a tent. Uh, This alludes to God's dwelling among the Israelites in the tabernacle, right? Exodus uh, 25, 8 through 9 talks about that. Let them make me a sanctuary. I may dwell in their midst. That's how the Old Testament puts it. And, And basically what this teaches us is that in the days of old, God manifested his presence to his people in the tabernacle and the temple. But now, As New Testament Christians, as those that have now uh, been witness and get to enjoy the fruits of the incarnation, John tells us that God takes up his residence among his people, incarnate word, Jesus Christ himself. Now listen, I want you to stop and think about this for a minute. Jesus Christ came and dwelt with his people for 33 years. 33 years. We're talking a lot of time. He didn't just appear for a moment. He didn't just swoop in like uh, here one minute, gone the next. He didn't just stay for a few days. Didn't just stay for a few months even. He was around on this earth long enough to make an impression that changed the world forever. Fully God. Fully man. Brothers and sisters, we must take heed that God himself came to sinful man. He dwelt with sinful man. And this was in order to save sinful man. Praise be to God. As we continue to to dive into this extraordinary passage, we, we see a second glorious result of the incarnation. We see that second heading here, God showed his incomparable glory. In the incarnation, God showed his incomparable glory. So let's read, continue to read here. John says, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. So John gets personal here. John then highlights the fact that he himself, as one of the apostles, part of the the inner circle, if you remember right, there was Peter, James, and John, was an eyewitness. Like he said, hey, we saw this. We saw the glory of God in Christ. Now, scholars disagree on exactly what he's talking about when he says he is, they, they saw his glory. We have seen his glory here. Some say it's uh, a reference to a specific situation. Some say it's a, a combination of all that God did, or Christ did, God, Christ, same thing, did while he was here on the earth. I think that's true. Right? He did many miracles. He did many things that could only be described as uh, God himself, ascribed to God. But I, I land in the camp of those that believe that John here is specifically speaking to the time that he, Peter, and James witnessed the transfiguration of Christ. 
transfiguration of Christ. Matthew 17, right? And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. So what happened here is Jesus takes these guys up to a mountaintop, takes his inner circle, his, his, his closest earthly friends here. And he literally, literally reveals himself as glorious. Uh, one of my favorite definitions of God's glory uh, is that God's glory can be defined like this. God's holiness on display. God's holiness on display. So when you think of the brightness that's described here, right? I want you to think of the purity of God. The purity here. The perfection of God. The uniqueness of God himself. The holiness of God alone. John tells us that the glory that was seen was none other than glory that could only be from God. Let's not miss this, right? We have an eyewitness to the transfiguration, recalling to memory a real event that happened. And he is decidedly saying that he witnessed something spectacular. It was something that could only be accomplished by God. Notice that John doesn't mince his words here. He's not nervous or hesitant in his declaration. He isn't reluctantly second-guessing himself here. Like, maybe he was God. I don't really know what happened. It was so crazy. Like, we just so bewildered. No. John here makes a declarative claim as an objective reality that must not be overlooked. He's talking about Jesus Christ with boldness. He declares with authority. He declares, I have personally seen the glory of the God-man Jesus Christ, myself. I've seen it. See, God has shown us his incomparable glory in the incarnation. Because just as God the Son had eternal glory before the incarnation, we must remember that he maintained glory on earth. Yes, it was veiled in human flesh, Jesus Christ knew human limitations, but nevertheless, our Savior's glory never ceased. John says here that this glory was glory that could only be attributed to the only, the only Son of God. Brothers and sisters, this is an incomparable glory. He says, the glory as of the only Son from the Father. And I've got to pause and ask you a question here. Do you see Christ as glorious? Do you see Jesus Christ as glorious? I mean, have you truly considered the glories of Jesus Christ? Are you easily bored, easily distracted when speaking of the glories of our Savior? See, my fear is that many in the church of our day and time have trivialized the glory of Christ. And they've done this by an unbalanced overemphasis of his human attributes. See, 
many have forgotten his glory. They, they've forgotten God's holiness on display. They've forgotten Christ's perfection in all regards. While we must maintain a theology of Christ's manness, if we are to stay within the bounds of Christian orthodoxy, brothers and sisters, we must be careful to not forget the glories of the God-man. We must also remember that the, few, the human form that Christ had is still existent. Right? Remember, Jesus Christ is still human. He didn't shed his human skin as he ascended to heaven. He still has a body, a perfected, glorious body, a body that we have not experienced here in this fallen world. But praise be to God that those who are his will experience a perfected body themselves when we are united with him in heaven. Amen. What a wonderful thought to ponder. What a wonderful truth to take hold of as we navigate in this cruel, hostile, oftentimes painful world. So God himself came to man, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Secondly, God showed his incomparable glory. He, he's shown it, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father. Incomparable. Then our last glorious result of the incarnation is that in the incarnation, God provides freedom. God provides freedom. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. Look at this last phrase here. Full of grace and truth. Later in John 8, John records the words of Jesus when he says, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You can say it, free. The truth will set you free. So, so why is this important because I, I want to be free. Clearly, here we see a correlation between truth and freedom. And, and we can even look at in our own lives the, the evidence that lies within our experiences. And we know that truth provides freedom many aspects of the term. Think about it. Even when you don't like it, the truth is a good thing, right? I'll give you a little illustration here. For example, say you, you go to the doctor. The doctor gives you a, a, a horrible diagnosis. Maybe the doctor tells you, hey, you, you've got cancer. You have cancer in your body, and it's it's growing, it's rapidly spreading. Now, although this is a truth that uh, one would never like to hear, it provides freedom in the sense that then we can, or we are enabled to make the necessary steps to stop the spread. There's, there's treatment treatment plans. There's things that we can hopefully stop. 
There is no truth. There is no treatment plan. The cancer just spreads. Now, I, I am sympathetic to those who have lost uh, people with cancer, so I know that there's holes in that illustration as well. But the truth there helps us to move forward in freedom. Or even simpler, my wife and I were just talking about this yesterday. <clears throat> the gas hand on your vehicle is a truth teller about the reality of the amount of fuel in your car. Now, you may not like the truth that you're on E and you need to stop and get gas. My wife's like, it's cold. There's people looking at me. I try to always fill her car up. Men, we should do that, right? We should help them. But oftentimes, I don't know it's on E. And she doesn't tell me. So the truth tells her, hey, you're on E. You got to stop and get some gas. Now, let me tell you, this is a very freeing experience because no one likes to be caught on the side of the road with an empty tank of gas. That's not very freeing. You have to wait for people to show up. You're, you know, it's awkward. You're trying to figure out, like, okay, what do I do? Do I put my head down? Do I pretend like I'm on the phone? Like, what do you do? So the gas hand is a very simple truth indicator that provides some freedom in our lives. We need truth. I know when I was uh, running the streets, running wild, my, my story, as many know, I was, I was crazy. I, I, I lived in the world so engulfed in the things of the world for many years. And, and I wish that someone, before it happened, when the Lord miraculously saved me and, and, and drew me out of the mess that I was in, I, I wish someone would have looked me in the eyes and just told me the truth said, listen, you're wasting your life. Now, there were people that told me that. I didn't listen all the time. But I needed them again to just say, you've got to stop. You've got to stop. And then, what about grace? Because we see we need the truth that Jesus Christ is full of truth. What about grace here? Because it says he's full of grace. So uh, let me just give you a quick, simple definition of, of grace here. Uh, grace is simply getting spiritual blessings that you don't deserve. You get what you don't deserve. It's the grace of God. We don't deserve that. We've done nothing to earn it. Grace then frees sinners to trust in Christ's work alone. It frees sinners to rest in salvation that comes only from God. And then what happens is when sinners, when we know that we have been saved by grace, it enables us to live by grace. It is told that when the great reformer Martin Luther uh, discovered and started preaching the glorious beauties of the grace of God, he was approached by a man who yelled at him. And he yelled this. He said, if this is true, a person could simply live as he pleased. Indeed, answered Luther. Now what pleases you? This is not a license to indulge in one's sinful nature. In reality, it touches upon the Christian's inspirations for his actions. The person who has been justified by God's grace has a new, loftier, grander view, a nobler motivation for holiness than those with some superficial, counterfeit self-righteousness. You know, claiming that, well, I, I did this to get to God, now he owes me something. It is when one understands the true grace of God that one is truly free to live for Christ. 
Here John reminds his reader that Jesus Christ is perfect grace and truth. A hundred percent. All the time. Just as his human and divine attributes don't contradict themselves, grace and truth are not contradictory either. Grace and truth are not in opposition. Grace and truth complement one another. It is not grace or truth. It is always both grace and truth. A failure to attend to both of these is a failure to extend love. Let's think about Jesus Christ. Jesus was always grace. Quick survey, right? He spent time and ate with sinners and tax collectors. He had compassion for the public when they were hungry and far from home. He welcomed the little children. He received the little children with with gentleness, with compassion. Jesus Christ healed the sick, the lepers, the lame, the blind. He saved the criminal on the cross. The one there dying beside him, the one who confessed Christ as Lord. And Jesus was also all truth. A quick survey will show us. Jesus Christ talked about hell, the realities of hell, more than he talked about heaven. He pronounced woes on the religious leader of his day for being liars and hypocrites. He elevated the moral responsibility of the law on the Sermon of the Mount, showing that there is nothing you or I can do to obtain perfect righteousness. We cannot fully fulfill what the law's demands. He prophesied judgment on Jerusalem for their unrepentant hearts. Jesus himself obeyed the law entirely. Jesus also set standards and demanded everything from his followers. What does he tell us to do? To pick up our cross and to carry it daily. This alludes to like, you may die. Cast it all aside for my name's sake. Jesus did not sugarcoat the truth to gain fans. He did not soften his message to please the masses. No. Jesus Christ is the one source, the one author of all truth. Listen, this implies to us that the reality is that sin is whatever God says it is. Judgment is whatever God says it is. Heaven and hell are what God says they are. Beloved, we cannot rewrite the rules to fit our preferences. If man contradicts God, then whatever man says in these matters is irrelevant. Paul reminds the Romans, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. So church, we must find freedom in the trusting In the perfect distribution of grace and truth, Jesus Christ himself. We must find freedom in Christ, in Christ alone. Find freedom in resting in his finished work. Find freedom in in believing and trusting that Jesus is who he says he is. The fully divine, fully God, man who came to 
free us from the bondage of sin. Jesus is truthful in diagnosing humanity as a people who need a Savior. And then he is gracious by becoming the Savior we need himself. Martin Luther really captures this in a quote that I want to leave us with. He says, He, Jesus Christ, condescends to assume my flesh and blood, my body and soul. He does not become an angel or another magnificent creature. He becomes man. This is a token of God's mercy to wretched human beings. The human heart cannot grasp or understand, let alone express it. Brothers and sisters, this is our Savior. If you are in Christ, if you have placed your faith in His finished work, this reality of Christ is yours to behold. We all, every person, every person who has ever existed, every person in this space will acknowledge that reality. Everyone. Some by choice, by an extension of God's grace to renew the heart, to respond to the beauties of the gospel, or some will respond in terror. Because the God-man will return, and he will reign forever. Church, let us be a people that relish that glorious truth of the incarnation of Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we need your help. The complexity of the incarnation is not something that we can totally fathom and understand in, in one sermon, in one passage even. Lord, it takes a lifetime of growing in knowledge and truth to grow in our understanding of who our Savior really is. But Lord, let us not resist that. Let us not be a people that that choose the path of uh, least resistance. Father, help us to be a people that grow in our knowledge of our Savior. And then would you help our hearts to grow in our love for him. May we share the glories of Christ with all whom we're able. And let it be for your glory. In Christ's name we pray.